Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our mass extinction, the Galarian paleontologist, I guess, and into the Galarian entomologist. And this episode that we didn't, we definitely didn't record in one session, and it had to be split into two parts because we were super nerds and had to split it into two parts. But I am back with my guest, Sebastian. And to get you all up to speed, previously we were talking about how Eternatus arrived 20,000 years ago in Galar through a meteorite that essentially wiped out um, whatever was probably living in the Galar region and melted the ice sheets of the time. And thinking about how that may have impacted the evolutionary history of Pokemon, not only the Pokemon, but thinking about the environment and the climate. Um, and specifically thinking about how this is impacting the invertebrates, the bug types of the Galar region today. And so where we left off, we were talking about how during the during the Shikshalub asteroid in the Yucatan Peninsula that caused the fifth mass extinction, the KT boundary, KPG boundary, whatever you want to call it. And um, Cretaceous. Yeah, end of Cretaceous. Some people refer to it as the end of dinosaurs and age of mammals entry, uh, which is arguable. I don't... Uh, uh, Any time it's like age of the dinosaurs or age of the mammals, I'm like, before these animals showed up, animal life was almost entirely bugs. While they were around, animal life was almost entirely bugs. After they were wiped from the planet, animal life continued to be almost entirely bugs. <laughs> this is it's just true. Who happened to be big changed, but like the what was driving the mass amounts of biodiversity was just it's invertebrates. It's especially bugs and like arthropods. Age of invertebrates, part five hundred and seven. Hey man, you, you never stop, never stopping. If you're winning, keep winning. Bugs forever. But where we left off, we were talking about the article by Wolf et al. that shows that insect diversity varied in relatively close geographic regions after this asteroid hit Earth, you know, killing most of the dinosaurs. And what this really means ecologically is that food webs were severely unbalanced. And the research team here notes that this unbalance of the food web could have gone through about one to two million years. And so when we think about the Galarian time scale, this happens 20,000 years ago. And by the time Eternatus wakes up, there is enough Pokemon that, you know, they Dynamax, they go berserk, that kind of thing. And it's a smaller, but it's a smaller impact, right? So it makes sense that, yes, it is that smaller. we're dealing with similar ideas, but on a much smaller kind of like time scale um, in a way that, it makes sense that by the time that that 17,000 years things have quieted down, there's at least something around. Do we know um, what Pokemon were around at 3,000 years ago? Because I'm like really fascinated to see if like, you have um, any examples of who was there. I really don't know. And I should have looked up how long ago the fossil Pokemon are said to have arisen oh that's a great question I, I i always imagined it was like like much much longer than it says that fossil pokemon most likely lived around a hundred million years ago yeah that, so that this is feels... much farther away yeah like example like base like 
the stuff that the impossible bookmen are drawing on are things that are like deeply, deeply, deeply ancient and not just like near prehistory ancient. I assume if there's any Pokemon based on like mammoths or saber tooths. Oh yeah, uh, mammoth wine, groups. Right. Yeah, we have mammoth wine probably exists in this time. Yeah, large felid Pokemon. Yeah, I guess what would be because bears. What would be around? Yeah, it's stuff coming in from kind of the European landmass. So you'd get those megafauna. You'd get uh, or just like really big kind of cold adapted animals um, and probably like some smaller, you know, like what, I guess what we would see in like a Siberia type environment. Although again, this is like my brain cannot run the calculations on like what happens when you meteor an ice sheet and how that changes. <laughs> like maybe that's the end of the ice age, right? Cause like maybe it just melts enough True. of the water to like trigger a, um, um to to um increase the temperature because the more ice there is on the planet the le- more sunlight's reflected off of it so if you melt a lot of ice heating will accelerate but it could also be like you said you mentioned earlier and one thing that was a consequence of the um end cretaceous meteor is all the stuff that's kicked into the air all of the the dust and rock and and gases that are kicked into the air that like affect climate in a lot of ways and often by lowering how much sun is hitting the ground cooling the earth so it could be like there was a the this meteor a mini like green or like you know non-ice period that then as the imp this longer impacts of the changed atmosphere took into place re-iced over and then by 3,000 years, and then at some point later, the ice sheets retreated. New stuff moved in, and then you get your 3,000 years ago population that gets, it doesn't, maybe like, at least disrupted. Maybe not like, I don't know, fully wiped out. Yes. Like At least the Pokemon, question, were the Pokemon that were rampaging, like, did they survive being dynamaxed or do did they not like i think the assumption is that all the pokemon survive it but they destroy the environment and a lot of like the human people yeah okay that that makes sense human uh houses buildings all of that kind of stuff which you know not totally against it (laughs) i mean yeah like it's the sort of thing of uh i feel less bad i still feel bad for the people but like at that time, we're 3,000 years ago. We're not at a, necessarily at a point where, like, overpopulation is as big of an issue. That's um, true. That's true. And humans' ability... I will say the Pokemon world, at the very least, presents a situation where seemingly there humans have a much lighter effect on their environment. Like, I know yes. there are storylines in a lot of cases, and I think maybe in this game of like anthropogenic like human caused environmental changes and so on but like the kind of like zoomed out look is we don't see a lot of those consequences a lot of those things seem to be caused by rampaging legendary pokemon in most of the games (laughs) i've played um and even in regions like um i mean kanto or even in um 
um oh gosh what's, what did they name the the new york city one i forgot the actual name of the region um the gen 5 region even in these areas that in real life are like mega cities right there's still a lot of like there's like city areas but there's still a lot of space set aside for nature um yes. and so you know G- galler uh, in particular is half wildlands and yeah when i was thinking about this episode, I almost turned it into something in terms of like how the real world sees a lot of habitat fragmentation. But the Galarian mm. map is like this really good example of building essentially what is it called? Like a, a corridor, a habitat corridor. Yeah, I'm Not looking even. at it right it's, now. It's mostly just like preserved land. But mm-hmm. that was the original idea. Clearly, it took a turn into the <laughs> Galarian mass extinction. I'm I'm also like now that I know that and I'm looking at the map I'm like am I seeing an impact crater here is it has yes, it been there, there the whole cr- time There is a crater I'm seeing like like half of an impact crater almost Yes and you like you can visit the historical sites in the game which I don't even think uh, actually I don't know much about the devs thought process I didn't look too deeply into mm-hmm. how they viewed the impact of this crater because I think the focus was just on Eternatus as the main driver of everything mm-hmm. that's happening in the storyline and less like the impact of the asteroid. Right. But the more you think about it, the more it is this really cool story of mass extinction that just is not mentioned because, you know, it's a, it's a game for kids, but it's cool when yeah. you can theorize off of it. I mean, yeah, it, it is this thing. There's like always this balance of like when I'm thinking about Pokemon as like a world versus like it's a game. It's designed to be a game to have a lot of things. And it's designed to be a game that's not, as far as I can tell, in playing it and in like what I've heard about sort of the dev approach, it's definitely about appreciating animals, but it's not necessarily an educational game where like that is a key goal for their players is to like, learn about real things it's a thing that kind of happens i i, I, I don't know for sure. yeah I yeah like. i don't know for sure to say that it's a but it feels like it's a thing that happens because they're already in a space and they're working with things that are in relation to the actual natural world yes but it's not a thing that they've like set out like hey we want to teach people about this sort of ecological process or this sort of evolutionary process um and so it's not the focus but seeing those hints is always really fun and that's also why we have podcasts like this one to <laughs> dive into the the learning portion what we can you know gain from real life and from the games and so thinking about this max extinction right the next step for me is always thinking about biodiversity mm-hmm. and that was part of you know my own professional research is on biodiversity and there's this really cool type distribution graph that i'm gonna send to you and it was definitely okay. made in r i can see <laughs> oh, oh you trauma. can feel the r oh i yes. love I, so for for the listeners uh who may not have experienced it r is a uh, programming language that a lot of scientists use to manage and analyze their data um and so it's you know it does graphs but it also does things like looking at a data set and saying what is you know the most likely interpretation based on the ones that the user suggests to it and things like that um and there is a certain ooh, that color scheme does feel like r doesn't it 
this yeah okay this this totally been done in excel and this person definitely did it this feels like gg the i'm pretty um, sure this is gg plot there's like a there's like a so it's, it's what we're looking at here is a series of bar graphs of pokemon distributed by type in little different regions but the background of the bar graph is a kind of light gray with like white um hashed lines at like each of the you know the intervals of like 10 of the counts and it's just something that like ggplot likes to do by default and i feel i feel you know ggplot is a thing that you can run in r it's like the basic everyone uses this for just like because you can you can kind of make it spit out any type of graph um and i can feel i can feel the ggplot <laughs> isn't that funny and it's so hilarious. It- I use this to look at bug types across the different regions, and I do want to shout out that this chart, these charts, multiple, is made by Yaylin Dizzle on Reddit. But when we look at bug types, the lowest number of bug types is in the Kalos region, so France equivalent, and it has less than five unique bug types. Less than five. Not five, less than five. Wow. Kalos, what are you doing? Right. And then Innova has the highest number. Which is 17 right. unique bug types, which is why Innova is like a, a bug enthusiast's dream. Look, man, as someone who is from Queens, New York, wow, opened up that game and I'm like, wait, I'm in Queens. <laughs> and I start. <laughs> uh, that's right, it should have the most bug types because that's the best type and that's the best, the best region. That's hilarious. I knew it was based on the US, but it's even funnier that you're from Queens and it's. It's like very specifically and- New York City. There's like, yes. there's, it, it, it is, there, there are parts that are like, you didn't need to make the Bronx a desert, but you sure did. And I don't know what that says, but like, <laughs> I'm a little suspicious about what it says. Um, but there are other parts where I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm just hanging out and like, yeah, this, this sort of just looks like Brooklyn or Queens. And this is where the 7-Eleven would be. <laughs> <laughs> But the Galar region, comparatively, has seven unique bug types across three evolution lines. So it's relatively low in bug type diversity. And I also want to quickly shout out to my friend Kip for helping me with this, who is in the Viridian Forest episode. But I like to imagine that the Galarian Extinction has something to do with this lower number of unique bug types, although the exact connection to that I did not think too deeply about. But I do think it's interesting that this later gen has significantly fewer unique bug types. Although the reason Anova has all of these bug types is also because there was a concerted effort to make bug types um, relevant in the competitive scene. So there's 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 stuff going on there. Yeah, I'm looking could... at this. Can I? Do you have the one for Galar? Because I'm really curious about the distribution. Or if I'm, I don't know if I'm like missing it on this one. This only goes up to Alola, Kalos, unfortunately. Right? Yeah, Alola. Yeah. Because I'm, so I'm really Galar. curious about the overall distribution as well to compare it and see if there's any, like, in terms of real-life evolutionary history, we would, barring any other things that we know, assume that Galar's distribution of Pokemon would be relatively similar to the closest region, which would be Kalos. But, I have this. I just found this link, uh, okay. which is graphs comparatively. Okay. 
But this isn't by unique. Um, yeah, that's the one Pokemon. that I'm like. Oh, and so and this one is by unique Pokemon and not by yes. just species that are found in the wild. Yes, this is all okay. like native. Okay, so this is really interesting because what we're really looking at is endemic species, species that that presumably, you know, that were like first or only found, like, I, I guess if this is just species that are only found there, so Pokemon that like, or first found in that game and like maybe show up in, in other games in the future, but like are most known from the from this area. Yes, it's their first debut. Okay, first debut. Because then we're really seeing sort of we're we're excluding Pokemon that have adapted to live in a wide variety of environments or that have been brought in by people. Um and it's hard to distinguish with that in like Pokemon history, but it is in real life, a lot of the times, I guess, Jillian, you're like, you're the actual ecologist here. What situations would we expect there to be a lot of, to, to find either a lot of endemic species or very few endemic species? In terms of very few endemic species, my first thought is always highly disturbed areas, although they're it depends on the taxa because taxa dependent, there are exceptions to mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But in general, rule of thumb, highly disturbed areas. Think of like cities, we would see fewer endemics, more invasives, non-natives. Um, in places, you know, it's the converse, right? For endemics and natives, places that are relatively undisturbed. And we think of places with high biodiversity along the equator, um, a lot of tropical and subtropical regions. Um, so when we think about the Galar region, which is a northern region, it's, you know, not near the equator, theoretically, if the Pokemon universe is similar to our planet, um, it's supposed to be northern. So we would. And I think that assume, tracks with like everything we've seen is that these yes. places are roughly where they are in real life. Yes. So relatively lower biodiversity compared to somewhere like, say, Alola, theoretically. Mm -hmm. That. It's it's really interesting because I'm, like, I'm so I'm listening to you and I'm looking at these charts and like you see some of that you see Kalos has 86 I think unique Pokemon and then Alola's also got only 86 unique Pokemon which is of course like there's also like a game design thing of like well there are already so many Pokemon that like right it's <laughs> a lot to add like another hundred and something more um. But of course, Alola is also an island, right? So you have, it's cut off a lot more from the rest of the world versus things that are like closer to bigger land masses. Right. Less, you know, migration of Pokemon mm. in theory. I had, there was an idea that I had when I started on this tangent. It sort of just left my mind. But I think the, what I wish we had in this graph is, all Pokemon that are natively found in that region that are like native by natively, right. I mean like that you could encounter in the wild walking around there. And then a, within that, a breakdown of only found here and then found in other regions, because it would be really interesting to see how that matches up with sort of the patterns we'd expect based on where these places are in real life. If there is sort of like a Galar is closest to Kalos and then the sort of four Japan regions, um, share a there's sort of like a, a 
a gradient from um, Sinnoh down to Hoenn. And you've got like Alola, like kind of close to some of them. Um, again, Alola this is the sort of thing is, that like. Oh, go ahead. It's, it's interesting though. Alola and actually Galar too, because they're islands, we get these mm-hmm. variants. So we get like the Alolan forms right. and the Galarian forms too, which is not something that I have, you know, covered in the script talking about that. I did consider that. Um, We've gone so way past the Galar region. I, I, I think, we, like, the, the script, I'm sure you still have a lot of stuff. At some point, I know, <laughs> we just took a left turn. To the, These are good left turns, though. We're going to cool places. We are. We are. But in terms of, like, these graphs, really what I wanted to get out of this was looking at the distribution of bug types and recognizing that the Galar region has a relatively low bug type um, quantity. What number did you say it was again? Seven. And the Seven. highest okay. is a Nova, which is 17. And the lowest, I think, is like four. Kalos um, is, yeah, four. Yeah, and then everyone Kalos. else is like in the low teens. Yes. Like Hoenn, Sinnoh, Jodo, Kanto, Alola are like in the low teens. So I wanted to dive deeper into then, since there are so few bug types in the Galar region, I thought this would be the perfect, you know, region to really dive into each of the evolutionary lines that exists in this game, because there's only three. Uh, if we covered Inova, this would be like a five-parter episode. Yeah, but then we, <laughs> we get to talk about, about Joltik and Galvantula from, from last episode, <laughs> one of my favorites, and they're so cute. Well, my favorite Pokemon is in the Galar region, and we'll we'll get to that. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I should have asked you what your favorite is, but now I won't. So I want the reveal. <laughs> so as we talked about earlier, in the Galar region, we get the first taste of open world Pokemon and seeing Pokemon out and about in the wild area, giving us ways to speculate about Pokemon ecology. But in doing this research, I realized these three evolutionary lines, you don't actually get to see, I think, any of them in the wild area, which is very funny because the one thing that makes the Galar region like novel and new and awesome, the bug type Pokemon, we don't get to see out in the wild. It's it's all the other. That's a real shame. But to start off, I wanted to begin with the blip bug line. So if you want to Google blip bug, I will now B-L-I-P. be googling blip bug. Blip bug's evolutionary line leads to Dotler and then or Beetle, and this line is clearly based on Coxinellids, aka ladybugs, aka ladybirds. They have a lot of different common names. Lady beetles. Yeah, lady beetles. Oh yeah, yeah, I see that. Especially in the, I mean, it makes sense because it's the bug like three stage line. So, uh, f- uh, let me try to describe these pokemon for our listeners um so the first one is like it's like you know one of those caterpillar type pokemons but the he's got it look he looks like a little nerd he looks like a yeah that's got part a little of like the, bow tie he's just got like a so his body's just like his head's like a big oval and he's just kind of like a long little tube underneath but he's got like a bow tie and it looks almost like a like a sweater vest underneath that and his eyes look like they're big glasses and he's blue and blue and beige yellow um has some like kind of v-shaped spines on the top of the head side of the head and on the butt 
Blitbug, I mean, this whole line, I think, is a really good representation of the metamorphosis of ladybugs, which is how I'll be referring to them from here on out. That's the common name I'm going with. And Blitbug, I think, for what it is, is a somewhat game-accurate representation of ladybug larvae. And if you've never Googled what ladybug larvae look like before, listeners, you should definitely do it now. Because most of the time when people see them in the wild, they have no idea what they are because they look like these really super awesome metal creatures. They look... I've always seen them and like, just like growing up, I would see them like, I don't know what these things are. They show up and then they're gone later. And like, I don't know what their deal is. And like, I couldn't figure out. (laughs) They turn into ladybugs. But Blitbug is noted by Bulbapedia to have setae, so those spines that you pointed out, I Mm -hmm. believe are supposed to be the setae, and it's known for its constant collection of information, therefore the nerd-geek sort of thematic to the Pokémon. And this is also indicated by its Japanese name, which is Sachimushi, and it's thought to be a combination of Sachi, which means sense, and Mushi, which is bug. Um, so that's Sede, gathering information from its environment, um, collecting that information, nerdy bug, sense bug, I think is pretty cool. Interesting. So design-wise, I think this is a really neat Pokemon, especially when you look at a ladybug larva and see the comparisons, but also yeah, thematically, I'm like, it's a I'm cool doing bug. The- the side by side here and like i see that there's like the crossover elements but if you if i didn't know right the sort of a lot of the like body shape and the sort of physicality of them are very different and they're these right. like like because the ladybug larvae they look like how do i describe them they just kind of look they look tankier they look they, they're just kind of like these they don't That's have the true. like kind of Blip big looks heads, more and they're just like one kind of tube, and their head is pretty small. Um, and the but the V shaped seti or those spines that is like that like seemed like the design thing that they really brought over because along the sort of looking top down at these guys, they're just kind of like seg- they almost they have that kind of like just continuous segments that um, something like a centipede would have, right? Where it's just like a pretty repetitive body chunk for most of them, even though they only have legs on, um, you know, they only have the six legs on like a centipede, but they've got on each of those, they have that like forked spine pointing up and out. And so I could really get that. Like clearly that was one of the things that whoever designed this was, trying to evoke and carry across even though they had a they had the nerd concept right and they're like okay let's take the nerd concept and let's put it um let's give it these spines so that so it matches and the color scheme is there too the like i don't know what the i don't know if these the image on bubble uh, i'm on bubble garden so i don't know if bubble gar i don't know if these but like he's got like it's like black but like that blue black and Mm -hmm. That's the, it's interesting because that is, again, it's not the shiny black that you might expect on a lot of um, exoskeletons of bugs, but it's like this, this a little more matted blue black that in, if you look up a ladybug larvae, you'll see a lot of examples of that on the, uh, particularly on like the, the kind of top of the body. 
this like blue black maybe indicative of like that not being a smooth structure but actually having like some texture to it i'm not really sure but i imagine a lot of people don't think of blipbug as a cool pokemon i i I don't think it looks cool but i think design wise it's cool and i got more of an appreciation for it Mm -hmm. through writing this episode and one of the other things that gave me an appreciation for blipbug is that in real life Ladybug larvae and ladybugs eat mostly aphids and other herbivorous insects. They're predators. They serve as important predators in our world, but what Pokemon they is like Blipbug eating? They're like pretty voracious predators. Yeah, so that means Blipbug is also a voracious predator, and so it's, this is the it's thing. eating other Pokemon. Okay, this is the thing that I have so many, like, this is the one point where, like, the Pokemon real world thing, I know from... When I watched Indigo, the Indigo League season as a kid, when I like read those early Pokedex entries, there's a lot of talk, and like in the show, you'd see like a Pokemon, like a Pidgey catching something and flying away with it or whatever. And there's like a lot of talk of like the Pokemon are eating each other like real animals, but like it feels like that. This is my vi- general vibe sense based on limited information that like that sort of got like. It's like the thing that they don't want to like, like, we don't want to foreground this. We like, like, they don't, they're they're all friends. They don't eat each other. They eat like vaguely round berries or like poffins or poke blocks. They eat like little processed food bits. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, Which for many animals that are like, especially a lot of, a lot of, there are a lot of, um, you know, bugs in particular that are like, they'll just eat. I'll eat livestock, they'll eat that stuff, you know. Um, but it there's one time a couple of years ago, and I don't know if this is, I like don't have the source on me, but it was a, so feel free to be like, hey, Sebastian, you just misremembered something because like that happens. But I have a memory of reading what was a, I don't know if leaked or publicly available sort of like design guide from the Pokemon company for um, merchandisers, people who wanted to license Pokemon and like make cute Pokemon things about like, what, what are you allowed to show the Pokemon doing? Like, what do they do? What here's the information about this brand so that you can make something that like, we won't sue you for. And there was a section about like eating and it's like, the Pokemon do not eat meat. They do not eat each other. You could show them eating like, treats like little muffins or little berries and so i understand that that's like probably a marketing decision at a certain point of like yeah we don't want to draw like just like a pidgey just 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 like tearing apart like a metapod or something like like, that wouldn't be great but i wonder how much like i'm really curious to like if i could ask Okay, there's a lot of things I would ask, like, a Game Freak employee. But one of those things would be, like, hey, man, can you just, like, tell me what the people, the designers behind this intend for these animals to be eating? Uh, And is it each other? I mean, why else would Pidgey have claws? Or Pidgey? They've got predatory... they're, They're predatory. A lot of them have very strong predatory traits or are based on really predatory animals. And like, again, I... If I they weren't love, predators, they would look different. They would I not would look like I would love that. to see a sort of like 
trend analysis of Pokedex entries over the years, especially of the same Pokemon across generations, to be like, when are they talking about the whether they eat each other and when is it about something unrelated to that? And if there's like a like a switch over or it just fades out or or maybe I'm misremembering it because like I'm a person, I misremember things all the time. I like so curious. Well, people eat Pokemon. That's canon. So I feel like Pokemon right. can eat Pokemon. But I, right, because because uh, there's uh, like again, I don't. Is this okay? Is that anime can or tail soup? Oh right, okay, yeah. People eat Slowpoke tail, but it, yeah, yeah. People eat Slowpoke tail. I remember like Taurus steak. I think was in the show of like yeah. a, a mention off screen. Like, you know, oh, yeah, I'd love to have a Toro steak, but, like, they don't actually eat it or something. But it's like, this exists in the world. So. (laughs) But in terms Uh, of Blipbug, it is only, so it's a foot tall, which is relatively large. If you ask, that is a big, That is, like, the size of my keyboard. But this is also... It's a slightly larger than Caterpie and Wormpole. And so mm-hmm. my guess is that if it is eating other Pokemon, it's eating Caterpie and Wormpole because those are theoretically herbivorous Pokemon. And yeah. So, so would the rest of the evolutionary line. It, they would be eating these particular Pokemon and probably other um, smaller herbivorous invertebrates. And one thing that's unique about the Blipbug line is that every part of its evolutionary line is the same size. They're all 1.04 feet tall. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. They don't, they just like, I mean, I guess that's, that's roughly ladybug, at least the adult, because like ladybug larvae will grow up, then they metamorphose, and then they like, they're about that size. Well, they're a little more condensed, but yeah. Yeah, they um, don't get terribly bigger. Are there Wurmple and uh, Caterpie for this guy to eat? I believe so. There's at least Caterpie in the Galar region. And I think Wormpole is too. Do we have any aphid Pokemon? I don't think so, right? I don't think so. But that would be fun. Oh my gosh. There's so much you could do with that, especially the concept of honeydew. Yeah, that'd be... Oh, yeah, that would be interesting. And you could have... Yeah, there's a lot of places you could play with because they don't... By themselves, they don't do too much, but yeah, they could. It could be something with like, I could see it having like a sort of like, like a like a bug water or like a grass water type, where like there is this sort of component of like it it has a stream of water that it can fire out of its butt. The next one, then, in the evolutionary line is Dotler, and Dotler is supposed to be representative of the pupil stage and. I think it's pretty spot on if you do a side by side comparison. I highly recommend you do a side by side. I understand. I looked. I looked at the nerd, and I was like, "That's a nerd." Uh, And then I like had to look at the like little the spines and everything to kind of get it. When I looked at this, and I was like, "I know exactly. I've seen this. I know exactly what this is." They used to confuse me so much because, um, okay, so what it looks like uh, for people who aren't in a place to look it up there's like a little orange guy he's like a ball right he's like a little orange ball with like little two feet and he's got like two eyes but he's wearing like a very big hat it's like a helmet 
that's like a uh i don't know what the right name for this polygon is but it is a regular polygon made out of triangles that's like covering it looks like a dome yeah it's like a dome made out of triangles on top of uh its entire body and like the the, the face is just like a really hidden and tucked away under there like if it like tucked its legs in, it would just be like a dome made out of triangles and and it has these like black spots and if you just google ladybug larvae and like run that through like a triangle or sorry ladybug uh pupa um and you just run that through like a spiky like a triangle shaped filter it's it's like right there it's a one for one and this design to me looks shield like and in real life you know it's supposed to be a somewhat defense mechanism from against predators you know hunkering down um, having a harder exterior to protect from that. And again, and this also implies there's Pokemon predators. So I'm very yeah. much for Pokemon eat yeah, Pokemon. No. I fully am there for it. I'm just like really curious from like the, the sort of the authorial intent yeah. perspective of like, what's that? Like, I just want someone from Game Freak to go on a live microphone and just say like, yeah, the Pokemon eat each other. We like don't want to talk about it because it's like they're eating each other. But like you just just know that that's there. And I'm like, okay, cool. We could have natural selection, and, you know, predation by nat- like natural evolution through natural selection by predation in Pokemon. Like I just I just want someone to take that box off. Just like just like let me know. I just you know. For me, the most fun parts of Pokemon are where it feels like a natural world, like a like an amplified version of our world. Um, and so I like there to be the same, you know, ecological dynamics that we have out in nature, um, at least some of them. And then last in this evolutionary line is orb beetle. So it's just orb plus beetle with only one B. And in this last evolutionary line or this last part of the evolutionary line, it's of course a fully grown ladybug. It's shown that it can fly. But it also has a Gigantamax form in which the shape it takes is representative of a UFO. And this is thought to be based on the real-life species Coxinella septum punctata, which is the seven-spotted ladybug. And the Bulbapedia entry notes that orb beetle is known for its high intellect and use of hypnotism and mind control. Oh, well, that's interesting. Which I think really is supposed to be... Oh, go ahead. derived from like the blip bug gaining a lot of information and then orb beetle being like this high intellectual being it is nice to see i don't know my my like impression of bug pokemon from i guess just the earlier games is that they are they tended to be more physical attackers but that's actually not necessarily true like and a butterfly got like special moves and things like that but for whatever my like default mind probably because uh you know i'm thinking of things like caesar and stuff is that they tend to lean more physical but like i think that just might be my own uh incorrect perception okay i now seeing the the ufo form where it's like the body's mostly the same but the abdomen just like fully well it's not the abdomen is it it's like the yeah it's it's sort of the this is actually a pretty good translation of the beetle body form to 
to sort of a Pokemon humanoid-ish Pokemon shape in that like they didn't put the beetle wings as like a backpack, which I see a lot when you have a beetle inspired thing in like a fantasy game or something. It they just like you get like kind of beetle wings as like a backpack. Here the I guess I can't I'm looking at the the art and I maybe the 3D model when you go in underneath might be different. It looks like the the way that it's you sort of from this angle, it looks like the beetle the wings so the I say beetle wings, I mean the hard and outer shell. The beetles like the the first pair of wings is like hardened and then the their actual flying wings are underneath that. And it has the appearance of being like almost continuous with the face and the head of it, which is what real life beetles look like, even though that's sort of just like because their neck is like shoved up right up against the the start of for or at least for ladybugs, right against the start of the where the thorax is. And so I I like that that visual kind of that they went with that instead of making it even more of a human proportioned. I'm thinking of like Ledian, you know what I mean? Like yes. if you look at Ledian, where um. I can't believe it has come up like it's the other like ladybug type Pokemon that I know of. It it has just like a wing, wings just kind of like on the back, disconnected from the appearance of the head. Um, it's got the color scheme of a and like the right number of limbs, but there's something <laughs> about Orb Beetle that oddly enough does vibe more ladybug to me <laughs> than Ledian does. Um even though in a lot of ways, like, Ledian's hitting, like, you know, it's got the red shell, it's got the dots, it's got the the sort of thing. This, especially the fact that it, this one's got like a, it's got like an angry, it's got like a, ooh, it's like, a, I'm going to mess you up. Like, not now I'm going to mess you up, but like, it's got a like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I got some schemes going kind of face, right? And like. That's the thing about ladybugs. It's like, oh, they have like, they're so popular because like, I guess like they're cute and whatever and they're everywhere. But like, they just run around just eating and killing everything all the time. It's just they're small enough that you don't notice that they're doing that unless you're looking for it. But like, they're just, they are voracious little predators and they will decimate aphids and other little things. Just monch, 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 monch. I have always wondered if people like, one of the reasons they're popular is because like they're on plants and I think like maybe they just like low-key assume that they're just like eating the plants or whatever. I think that but- is. I, I had someone the other day who was talking to you about what ladybugs eat and they said they had <laughs> no idea that they eat other animals and they don't eat plants. Oh, no. Yeah, they just... And because the aphids also like they, they're a lot of time they're like green. They kind of look like... Especially if it's like chewing it, it could just look like plant material. But they're just... I don't know what's the, what's the equivalent like an aphid size thing for us. It'd be like it's just like I guess like a mouse or like a mouse sized animal. If there's just something like just kind of like a relatively slow moving rhino sized animal was just like eat a mouse, keep moving, eat a mouse, keep moving, eat a mouse, keep like that's the sort of like thing that they do, and they just like crawl all over, just keep eating stuff. As far as I know, they they're not like I don't know, Julian. Have you like spent? I haven't like spent a lot of time observing them, but like from what I know about ladybugs, they don't really have like too many predatory adaptations that I'm aware of, of like 
how they catch the food. They just like walk up to the aphid and bite it. I th- that I I am not totally sure, but I, that is my understanding as well. Is that they just kind of saunter in, consume, keep consuming. When there's not consuming to be done, they leave, find a new place to consume. Yeah. And so I, I like that they gave it this sort of like more villainous vibe uh, that feels more true to the animal. What's interesting to me about this evolutionary line beyond what we've talked about is that there's only one place where you can encounter all three pieces of this evolutionary line, and that's in the giant's cap in the wild area. Environment, in, Environment-wise, I don't really know. I, I couldn't really think of like what significance this would have to the animal. It's There might be some indicator that the giant's cap is a unique, perhaps ideal location for all three phases of the evolutionary line, um, and presumably a breeding ground. If it's, you know, this ideal spot and in real life and certain times of the year, depending on your location, ladybugs form these large groups called an aggregation and an aggregation can be used for protection, sharing resources, warmth, but it's also largely used for mating. And so I like to imagine that giant's cap is like the breeding ground for this particular Pokemon, although I don't think it's like the exclusive breeding ground. But you can but find all three stages maybe. here, yeah. right? It's well, it's, and it's the... like the it's again. I guess because there are some Pokemon that can't breed, but I imagine all three stages of this species or this line can breed. Because I know uh, some Pokemon like baby Pokemon. Okay, so just the fine, just the adult one can yeah. can be bred to make eggs. Okay, so that so that so that's where they would where the adults are is where the breedings take place because. Right. The other ones can't mate. Um, right. So I think you. It sounds like you hit it like right on the dot of like. Uh, I'm trying to find where this. I'm trying to find like a labeled map, but this like giant's pass that you mentioned is sounds like yeah, that's where they go. And it's just like this rock formation towards the northern part of the wild area. So I I'm not sure if it's like the rock provides warmth when it's sunny. Perhaps they aggregate there during warmer weather because there is a lot of weather change in this particular spot and again this is one of the newer functions to the pokemon games is this dynamic weather changing now you don't have to go to a region or there's just rain as an alternate weather pattern i think there's like seven different weather patterns you can experience in these locations yeah that's pretty cool does it affect the appearance of wild pokemon like it does what the not. Is. Some Pokemon do change appearance based on weather, but none of the ones we are talking about do. I know that in the Paldea region, the newest region, there are Pokemon that change based on the time that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Not the time, but like the season of the game. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that was also in Unova. They had the seasonal forms mm-hmm. for a few Pokemon. And like, I think there may have been like seasonal, like, percentage shifts and how likely you were to find different species yes. if i'm remembering and correctly we also have cast form from Sinnoh. yes yeah that changes based on weather uh, but none of these pokemon change based on weather though they are still cool yeah and i think the blip bug line to or beetle is i don't think is anyone's favorite like i don't think anyone is gonna be like this is my favorite pokemon it's the coolest pokemon but i definitely have a deeper if appreciation for it or beetle or the mill one 
that I forgot its name, is your favorite, please add us because we have questions. I mean, not really like, they're not like aggressive questions, right? I'm like, this is your favorite Pokemon. That's cool. I just kind of want to know like what you, what like makes it stand out. The next line I wanted to cover is the Snom Frostmoth line. And I feel like Snom is one of the fan favorites to come out of Sword and Shield because it is so cute and it evolves into Frostmoth. Yeah, I just, I just Googled Snom. Isn't I've seen it this adorable? guy once before. It was I was at, I was at another Arachnologist place and she uh like was showing me um uh Scarlet Violet, but I was like, who's this little guy? You've got this little guy. Who's this little guy? He's just like a little. He's just like a little guy. And the crazy thing is, is they're they're based on a real moth family. So Snom is real. It's the moth Wait, family Dalceridae. D l d a l c e r i d a e. It's not the same color scheme, but it's the same physical same representation. Idea. Yes, and they're also known as jewel moths. So if listeners definitely oh, look I them see up. It they're now. super cool. Oh, this is yeah. so cute. The okay, this is I rarely do say this. The real like um uh caterpillar is almost cuter than this little guy. Uh, I feel because... like people would come after you for that because Snom is the like top tier cute Pokemon. Yeah, but these these this they look like They look like okay, the one that... Yeah, they look like little gummies. They look like they're made of like, gosh, um, at some point there was like a trend of like, and I say trend, this is just like a long time ago, of like making little like kind of like beadwork things. The one that I'm seeing right now looks like it's made up of like little like pearlescent little beads that have kind of been like beaded into the shape of just like a little, just like a little like oval. Guys, they're they're cute. Uh, This is like, I don't always you know, have a Pokemon where I'm like, where there's that clear, like, one-to-one real life, where they're, I, I'm almost, like, more interested in the real life one. Like, Caterpie looks just like that one butterfly that is just Caterpie. Uh, and they're like, yeah, they look similar enough. Like, I, I'm, I don't have any, like, I don't have any notes to add here. But I'm like, these little things are adorable. I wish we had, like, I almost wish they came in like different like color, you know, some some Pokemon right? have like color variations. Because they the sort of like overall thing, it's just nice to see. Anyway, look this up. They're quite cool. So Snom and Frostmoth clearly are based in cold areas, winter, that's the thematic for them. And the fact that it endures the cold could be based on woolly bear caterpillars, which have been found to endure temperatures as low as 94 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 70 degrees Celsius, by going into a dormant state. And it could also be based on the moth genus um, Gynephora, which is also known as alpine or arctic moths, so they're, they're relatively resistant to colder temperatures. Although there's no physical resemblance to these two kinds of moths, and they neither of these are in the family Dulceridae. I'm it's mostly just the physical appearance. Here that I mean, like, there's at least some of these that well, you know what? No, Frostmoth looks pretty different. It's got it has a very Frostmoth has a very like sty- very stylized design. Where like I see the like fluffy kind of like moth the kind of fluffy, like almost like big like stole that some moths look like they have but i'm seeing some alpine moths that like 
you know, they've got some of that a little bit of the fluffiness if you get up close, but yeah, it's not it's not quite the same. I think it could be based on the Venezuelan poodle moth. Although I think the poodle moth was discovered in the same year that the game No, it was discovered 10 years before the game release. Um but the cool thing I about the poodle Googling. moth or the less cool thing about the poodle moth is that most of the pictures you see of it on the internet are fake. Only very few images of the poodle moth are real and it is a real moth, but the only person who has been known to photograph this moth is Dr. Arthur Anker from Brazil. And so there's just people who are like, this thing is cool. I'm just going to find a white moth and call it that. Uh, Well, it's mostly, I think, like faked images or similar looking moths, or there's like a felt moth that got really popular that people thought was real. Yeah, I think I'm seeing this. Yeah. It is adorable. Yeah, I think it does. That has a lot more like visual similarity with the the Pokemon, um, especially the like kind of big swooping antennae. And in terms of, you know, the ecology of this Pokemon, we've talked a little bit about how it's temperature resistant, but I also was considering what it might be eating because, you know, moths tend mm-hmm. to have a host plant. So do butterflies. And based on general moth knowledge and not necessarily these specific moths, knowing that SNOM exists in the colder, wintry-ish looking areas of the Galar region and other regions that it appears in, I assume that the host plant that it's feeding on is either the coniferous trees that show up or the grasses. But those are the two, you know, plant species in air quotes that show up across all regions that SNOM and frost moth exists in. I'm looking at frost moth and I'm not seeing a proboscis. Uh, so this could just be one of those. This is one of those moths that's just like it don't eat when it's an adult. Yeah. Right. Because because there are a lot of. You know, we see moths a lot um, and butterflies a lot. And but for many species, that's just like the last part of their life. And they spend the greater percentage of their life as the larva. Um, and the adult form is mostly just like mating and laying eggs. And in those cases, well, it's like, if you're not going to eat, you could save some energy by not having a digestive system and then just using what you would have done to like grow a digestive system as an adult to just like have some like fat reserves for flying or whatever, or to make more eggs. And so there are a lot of moths that like, they just like 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 cannot eat um and i'm wondering if that's the case because like i'm looking at frost moth it's got no visible appendages apart from the at least i don't know if in the animation it 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 does anything but at least looking at it it doesn't seem to have any visible like appendages it's just got the wings and the antennae um which suggests that it like doesn't really land it doesn't really like grab or hold things it seems to just kind of fly around and just, I guess, like mate and lay eggs. Um, at least for the visuals. I don't know. Again, like, please correct me as like, if you play the game, do they animate out like something like it's got little like hands or something or like a little I mouth? I think but... it does in terms of appendages. But if it does, I assume it might land in the anime, although I haven't. I would have to watch that part of the anime because it only appears a couple times and I think only briefly. And one of the gym leaders, it is her like main Pokemon. But yeah, that's an interesting bit of design element 
um, that I, I imagine, again, probably not intentional because I'm sure you could like feed it berries or whatever, but it certainly evokes a cool thing about a lot of real life mods. Yeah. The last bug type line I wanted to talk about, not to drag you away from the cuteness that is Snom and Frostmoth, but last but not least is Slizipede, which evolves into my favorite Pokemon, Scorch. And as many of my friends know, one of my prized possessions is a PSA grade 10 holocard of Kabu, the gym leader's Scorch, that I received as a wedding gift from my friends Jeremy and Irene. It is, it is like my probably the best wedding gift that I received that, or at least my favorite. <laughs> that is that is the level of dedication of like I have picked my favorite pokemon. It is hands down there are no it's like you've made a decision and it's very strong and you have people in your life that respect that, which is like what we <laughs> everyone can only hope for. And Sunscorch also has a Gigantamax form, which is Incredible. I, yes, Send a Scorch, Slizipede, my favorite Pokemon line. It is clearly, to me, based on centipedes. Some might say millipedes, but I disagree. This is I a think centipede. it's very clearly a centipede, is, yeah. De- both name wise, and you can tell right away from the head that that's a centipede. Because it's got the, it's got the, the first legs turned into pincers or into venom injecting pincers that, um, that centipedes have. And fire centipedes, like Sun to Scorch, do exist in real life. They just don't produce flames. And it's thought to be based on the centipede Scolopendra gracilis. Oh, it's a Scolopendra. Well, that makes sense. Yes. And it could also be based on the Japanese myth of Omukade, which is a giant man-eating centipede. Well, that that checks out. Uh, yeah, I mean, this. yeah, I'm looking at a Scolopendron. It's like the design, the colors are there. It's yes. The flatness is there. Even the like it's kind so of- It's so good. Very chunky, like conical um, uh, legs. You really feel it. And in the anime too, there's, so <laughs> canonically in Sword and Shield, what happens is Spoilers before anyone who hasn't finished the game and Sebastian, this is. I mean, we've already spoiled like the history of it. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know if that's spoil. If that's a spoiler. It's you learn it all in like the first half of the game, oh, but it's okay, like yeah. not. Yeah. Anyways, Chairman Rose is like the main antagonist of the game. Oh yeah, of course and he his, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen yeah. that. I've seen a photo like. Of course he is. <laughs> And he, his goal is to wake up Eternatus to gather Galar's energy um, and something about energy sources, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, what? he unleashes. You can't, so he, you can't let these, he's like the chairman, right? Now you can't, you can't let the, you can't let the, the company guy be like, I want big energy because question mark. Don't. <laughs> Folks, that's a, we need to, we need to, we need to just like know the red flags. If the, if the like, Millionaire, billionaire is like, what if I had the most destructive energy ever for me? Uh, please don't. Please don't tell him. He, he says he wants to harness his energy to prevent an energy crisis from affecting the Galar region. Is there an energy crisis in Pokemon? It seems like, in many cases, a post-scarcity environment. And he's like, I, I will do this no matter the consequences. But the consequence... 
is that the darkest day part two happens when Eternatus awakens and all the Pokemon go berserk. And in the anime, we see what happens when a Dynamax or a Gigantamax Centiscorch goes berserk and starts, you know, attacking everything. And that gives you somewhat of a sense of the destruction that's happening. And it does try and attack people. So I can't even imagine a Gigantamax Centiscorch coming after me. Um, but in terms of how big it is, I think yeah, I have to How big is the regular up. guy? Centiscorch is Cause like the nine big foot centi- ten. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that's like where I because like I'm used to thinking that my big one of my favorite bug types and one of my 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 favorite big centipede is um oh gosh, what's is that? Is it what's the that's the it's not velocipede, it's the scoliopede. Oh no. Yes, yeah, scolipede's the 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 final one, right? Or am I am I am I just like scolipede? Yeah, scolipede from from Unova, which is again another big big centipede kind of guy. Um, but yeah. he's like like horse sized, which is great because uh, you can kind of like ride around on him. Gigantamax Thunderscorch reaches two hundred and forty six feet. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> So, bug. if you think about Gigantamax Centiscorch going on a rampage during the darkest day, and it's also like this fire-based Pokemon, yeah, and it's it's the Galarian Mass Extinction Part Two, <laughs> for sure. I'm I'm so I want to know because we talked about my favorite Pokemon. What about Centiscorch? Are you like this is the one? This is the coolest. It just looks cool. Yeah, but also, it <laughs> also, it's a fire type bug type, which That's are like typing. typically two conflicting types, but you combine it into one and it's got this cool design. And it's also the main Pokemon of the gym leader, Kabu, who I have a crush on. <laughs> Anyways. Now looking up the gym leader, Kabu. Stop. This is embarrassing. <laughs> I did not volunteer that information nor ask it. I get You're to You're about look to learn a lot team. about me in like two seconds. <laughs> I've learned many things about Julian today, dear listener. <laughs> Interesting choices were made, and they're entirely valid. <laughs> You're hey man. He's got a Dude's got a vibe. Dude's got a vibe. He's got a I'm scorch. Not... He's got a clear vibe. He's got the strongest item. I can see. I can I'm just like Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God>. Anyways, <laughs> Scolopendra gracilis is <laughs> found mostly in tropical and subtropical regions. Oh, yeah, we're talking about, we, yeah, that's what yeah. this show's about, right? Yeah, okay. It's about Pokemon. <laughs> it's about Pokemon. Uh, <laughs> it's found in subtropical and tropical regions such as Malaysia and Centiscorch. To me, design-wise, seems like something that would come out of, say, Alola. So my question is how a Pokemon like Centiscorch becomes a unique Pokemon in a region such as Galar, which is a northern island, it's not tropical at all, and the biggest climate event for Galar would be the asteroid or, yeah, that kind of thing. But the asteroid would decrease temperatures, so how it has adapted to the Galar region is kind of beyond me. Maybe it's just Pokemon, you know, Pokemon science, Pokemon biology. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is where I was really curious about. 
I wanted to see if there was anything like these centipedes living in the UK. So I do what I usually do. I popped over to iNaturalist. And first I put in the genus Scolopendra, um, which is the most famous of these guys, like that, like the species that you mentioned. And they are like really strictly tropical. There's like a very, like they're in Spain. And then there's the mountains that are like at the top of Spain and like kind of um, Italy and so on. And there's just like a hard line. Like these got that genus Scolopendra do not live further north of that. But if you look at sort of the larger relatives, the scol- uh, what is it? order Scolopendromorphy, so Scolopendra-like centipedes, those you can indeed find in the UK. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what species are here, but there are a couple. There is genus Cryptops, which is a cave centipede that is that same orange and like dark red. And so it might just be that even though this, the more famous kind of versions of these animals are tropical, they are ones that, I mean, in the real world have adapted to this environment. And it seems like they are in caves. Now, this is where I ask in the game, where do you find these? Um, and does it seem to match with the real life, the habitat of the real life ones, which seems to be mostly underground and in caves? So one of the m- main ways to find Sendoscorch and less Sizzlipede is that you go to the rave dungeons, raid dungeons, excuse me. Okay, I was and about to say, like rave this- dungeons sound different. <laughs> It's this, um, it's basically like a well is what it looks like. And Mm -hmm. the actual location of what a raid dungeon, like where it would be is if it's, you know, below ground or above ground is beyond me. But the assumption is below ground since it's a well-like shape. Okay. And you can only get Gigantamax Centroscorch by going in these raid dungeons. You can find Sizzlipede in some grass areas, but it's actually, I think, Scorch is one of the rarest Pokemons, especially Gigantamax Scorch for the Galar region. So that honestly does, under the assumption that these are underground places, that does sort of track with where the kind of real life parallels um, would be, is that these are ground dwelling or cave dwelling centipedes that share a lot of visual similarities in the same region um which is again i don't know i love i like it's one of those things where it's like i really hope that these are things that the designers are like doing but it might just be like hey this is a really cool guy but like it's a late game thing so we're gonna put it behind this dungeon encounter um and it was a happy coincidence um but even if it's just that it's really cool to have that out there yeah the, like, the only biology we get about Sendoscorch is that it turns the fermented food, or it eats food, it ferments the food, I think, within its own body, and then it converts that fermented food into gases, and then the heat from its, um, its abdomen oh. ignite the flames. And the flames are optional. They can turn them on and off. So, Jillian, are you telling me that this is a, a centipede that is eternally farting? On command? Yes. Okay. 
And this is your page. This is what? No. <laughs> uh, I did not know. I just thought he could breathe fire because a lot of Pokemon can just do that. Uh, it's really cool that they thought about, like, they're like, okay, yeah, he needs gas to burn and everything. Um, but I did not need to know that he's just <laughs> and then lighting it on fire. I can't even imagine what it smells like. It's got to be bad, right? It's a cave dwelling thing. It's got to be like a sulfur, right? It's got to be like, <laughs> I mean, you know, you're in a cave, you're sulfur, you're fermenting. So you're getting like, For those you know, who don't know, like, sulfur is like classic fart smell, rotting egg yeah. smell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of smell that you'd see in like volcanic regions pretty often. Um but oh also, my gosh, yeah, does like, that mean Buswool smells like farts because it comes out of a volcano? Is it is it is it farting all the time or is it just in a volcano? I think it's just in a it volcano, had, but it's If it's been in there, then it probably has some fart aura on it. And then it, it you know. <laughs> um look, I, like I didn't think this is where sweats. we'd end up today, but, <laughs> but anyway, been a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> yeah, this this is Part two is not, I think, so there was a point where we were like, we took a break, we ended part one, and we're like, let's keep going, go to part two. Folks, I had a different idea where we would be an hour into part two. Oh, oh but we ended up in some fun play. To kind of wrap this all up, though, there are only seven unique Galar bug types like we talked about. But in total, the Galar region Pokédex contains around 85 bug-type Pokémon. So there's actually a significant diversity of bug types, especially because this is Gen 8, a later gen, so you can essentially get most of the bug-type Pokémon in this game. And it shows that we've really come a long way since Gen 1, which originally had 12 bug types. Yeah, and they all kind of sucked. <laughs> they're like, all, like, they're all, like, like, you, yeah... This, I mean, there's a lot that you could like try to, to do, but in terms of like just playing through the game as a kid, they were not fun to. I mean, they were like fun in like design wise, but like it, you really felt these sort of like these are designed to be the first Pokemon you get, and then you just chuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You use Caterpie and then feed it to your your Blip Bug. Yeah, that exactly. Is... <laughs> but thinking about the Galar region as a representative for the UK, thinking about mass extinction, I did learn that over the last 20 years, the UK has experienced a 60% decline in flying, flying insects. And there's this talk going on right now that we could be in the sixth mass extinction. Oh, so we, the, like, me personally, like it's definitely. I also believe yeah. we are in the sixth mass extinction and we'll, put some stats behind that here in a second. But in terms of invertebrates, I think they're a group that goes understudied in terms of conservation. There's, I mean, the biggest thing that I can think of right now is that the windshield effect has done a lot to sound the alarm for the sixth mass extinction, not just for invertebrate decline, but thinking about the sixth mass extinction as a whole. And Sebastian, do you mind explaining what the windshield effect is for Absolutely, listeners at home? Yeah. So this is a thing that sort of got in the news recent, relatively recently, but back, the idea is back in the day. Uh, and by back in the day, I mean like 30 years ago or even just 15 years ago, 
when you'd be driving around in the summer um, on like a highway, your windshield would just be splattered with a lot of flying bugs that flew over the highway and got hit by cars onto your car. And there's been at first a sort of like unofficial, like just some people who like drove a lot were like, huh, just like, there's just like less bugs, right? It used to be like just a matter of fact, you drive around a lot, you get a lot of bugs in your windshield. Then there were certainly fewer and people sort of, it was like a moment of like, what's going on? And there have been studies since then um, that have tracked at least a continuing decline, right? Because we can't go necessarily go back in time and check what was happening like 30 years ago because no one was noticing it because it was normal. But since people started noticing and started tracking then, we're seeing fewer and fewer of these flying insects, which, you know, over highways getting hit by cars, which is indicating just like there's a lot less of these animals in particular. And if these, which used to be the most common, are in decline, it probably means that it's like very, very reasonable to suspect that everything or many more that even before didn't used to get hit by cars are also in dire straits. Right. So as we talked about, Chicxulub is the fifth mass extinction at, you know, the Cretaceous period. The sixth mass extinction that we believe we are currently in is known as the Holocene extinction. And previously, extinctions have been brought on by natural occurrences, like we talked about, you know, the asteroid, um, natural fluctuations in climate. But current mass extinction, the Holocene mass extinction, is arguably preventable, as this mass extinction is mostly due to humans. Keep in mind that to be considered a mass extinction, there has to be a loss of more than 75% of animal species. And when we look at the fossil record, the standard extinction rate is about one species per every million species per year. And according to the Smithsonian National Institute, today's extinction rate is thought to be hundreds, perhaps even thousands of times higher than the natural baseline. And the World Wildlife Fund says that the current extinction rate is about 0.01 to 0.1% of species per year. And if we go with the lowest estimate of species on our planet, which is around 2 million, and I think that is extremely low. Yeah, 2 million animal species. Yeah, 2 million animals. That means 200 to 2,000 animals are going extinct per year. Per year. And the UN, yes, per year. And the UN reports that there are approximately three species extinctions per hour. So that means in the recording of this podcast episode, approximately six species have gone extinct. Uh, Yeah, that, well, we shouldn't have recorded. (laughs) But like, I think that that's like a really important thing to mention. We talk like we started talking about an asteroid or a meteor impact as an as a mass last mass extinction that happened, and that feels and is in, in sort of a very narrow sense a very immediate thing that ha- like like asteroid hit and then after the asteroid hit everyone dies, but the reality of that that happened everything near the asteroid but the amount of extinctions that occurred the reason it's like a mass extinction event and the way these things have played out on time is that mass extinctions don't happen over a year or two years or like even a hundred years they happen over thousands or sometimes even like up to like hundred thousand or a million years it's and like that in 
compared to the history of life on earth is still a very short amount of time um that but like in any if you were on that in within that amount of time as long as the asteroid wasn't hitting like last week or you know in the last 100 years or so you might look around and be like you know there's still animals there's still stuff there's still you know it's only in zooming out a little bit more could you notice like oh wow like a lot of things have died um and yet but to and it's sort of like it's sort of like a microcosm where we're out today because like today i look around I, I can find some animals right like we go outside but just within my lifetime those have the amount that i can find is so much fewer um and if you think about like on the scale of like if we if we like took the rate that and things are going extinct right now and we like did that continuously over the amount of time that a regular quote unquote regular mass extinction takes to occur, it'd be like so much more devastating than I think like it's easy for humans to like comprehend because our brains evolved to not think on that amount of time. It's uh, quite a downer. And I do remember that one of my first real my first realizations about ma- the current mass extinction is the extinction counter at the Chicago Field Museum, which I think is a really powerful piece that they've had for decades now, which when you you go through the different mass extinctions, um, that's what the exhibit is. You go through the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and then the end of the exhibit is the sixth mass extinction, the current one that's happening, and it opens with an extinction counter. And it tells you how many species have died over the course of the day. And you can return to that counter and it changes yeah. as, as you, you know, spend time at the museum. And so that's an exhibit I think about a lot when I consider conservation and extinction. And as an arachnologist, I think a lot about how there's probably so many invertebrates going extinct that we never even got the chance to discover yeah. or describe because it, they're just they're that's gone. The, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's I was about to. I had a question. I did a, a like a um, an event for a I don't even remember right now. Oh, sorry, let me start over. I did an event for a entomology undergraduate course, just talking about like it was like a career day type thing. But I had a student ask, just like as a, a side question, like, oh, what was what extinct you know, insect or arthropod, do you miss the most? Like, which one are you most saddened by? And there's definitely like a lot of really cool extinct species, but at least we know that those exist, right? At least we, there are some really cool extinct arthropods or as well as extinct spiders or like weird non-spider arachnids. Um, There's like, but like we have physical evidence of those. Because they went extinct so long ago, and they fossilized, and we can see them now. There are species, like you said, Julian, that we don't know that they exist right now. They have gone extinct in our lifetime. And because of the conditions of where they are, like um, there's a very good chance that they may never be fossilized, because insects fossils are rare. A lot of them require like very specific conditions or like sap and things. And a lot of the environments where fossils are created um, 
humans have affected so many different environments that like if you're just not in like we've removed a lot of environments that would allow for fossils to be created by like changing land use and like using so much of the land in a way that doesn't let things like slowly settle into becoming a fossil and so not only did we never know them they've gone extinct before we got to know them and it may be that no one will ever get to know them because even their remains may not be preserved and like that's really sad that's the like the the ultimate unknown of it wasn't you can't even be like wistful about oh i wish i could see this in real life because it's like you have nothing to imagine because we didn't get a chance to even have like you know this like pressed into stone thing to like kind of guess what it would look like in real life and the worst part is is it's our fault yeah as humans you know it wasn't caused by an asteroid it was because we didn't take care of our planet and i you know in terms of invertebrates, you don't see that many invertebrates listed as endangered mm-hmm. or threatened yeah. or vulnerable. And that's because it's so difficult for us to, first of all, I mean, the number of yeah, people studying invertebrate yeah. conservation totally is so low. And it's also difficult in terms of methods to get estimates on invertebrate populations because you do have to find them, you do have to count them. We can do our best to estimate, but it's not like counting yeah, elephants. I think that's the thing know, that it's, maybe it's like it's, a lot of people don't necessarily notice or realize about the endangered species process, but it is a, there is a process for like getting on that list and it requires a lot, a certain level of evidence because, you know, you, you need to be able to have some sort of thing to make, because that changes how everyone has to interact with that animal, et cetera. So there has to be like a cutoff, right? But the entire system was designed I don't think explicitly, but I think like subconsciously focusing on certain types of animals that are like birds, elephants, big things that we can see and easily track and that there's a lot of already existing interest in. Um, And a lot of people have been looking at them and had a lot of funding for. Um, And so when you talk about, like we said, arthropods that, you know, I'm, are animals that like many people overlook all the time to get to the level of evidence that you need to just like apply for endangered species status. You have to do a lot of science, which means you have to have a lot of funding and trained scientists to do for. And it's like this infinite loop of, well, people aren't already concerned about these animals. They're like, so they're gonna, there's not as much money for them. And there's not a lot of science studying them. And so it's an infinite, it's like this loop of like frustration that we're unfortunately having to deal with. And it's not just a lack of concern either. I mean, people yeah. don't like yeah. invertebrates. They they want some invertebrates to go extinct in some cases. I mean, how many times have we heard people say yeah. kill it with fire yeah, about spiders, it's really you know? Some people would think that spiders going extinct would be a good thing and it's it's not. Um that's why we have ecology is learning how everything interacts with each other and how it you know, builds essentially this quote unquote balance, which yeah, it's a balance know, in the sense of the like, ecologists in the room get. Yeah, know I, what I think I'm the word balance at. makes it seem like, <laughs> again, at least for me culturally, there's like an extent of something that's imposed from above. Like someone was like, this is what the balance should be, and this animal will do this much, and this, and it's more like a, a uneasy truce 
that has been arrived to over a lot of like competition and interactions, but it is a bad, like the effect is similar in that like Mm -hmm. change, dramatic changes are limited, um, but it is a more like organic shifting sort of thing versus like something that was designed or like limited very strictly, but it's still like a type of balance. There are different types of balances. um, And boy, does our ecosystem balance rely really heavily on bugs and other invertebrates in a way that um, I honestly wish was reflected more in the Pokemon games and that there were more bugs out there and they weren't like the sort of like <laughs> sideline type for a while. There's more now. There's there's like definitely more now. It's like improved, but I know certainly for a while it was the, it, they, it was the, the ones you get in the beginning and then you forget about them sort of type. I don't want to end this on a sad note, though. So I want to talk about what we can do to prevent and slow extinction and to take care of not just the environment, but the animals and especially the invertebrates. So I have, I think, a lesson from the game, which is the well, from what you've told me about the game, which is when a um, sort of like a corporation leader is like, hey, I want that to control this source of energy and just like use it for my own means. Even if literally everyone around me who has studied this more than me is like, it's a really bad idea. Don't do it. Um, We shouldn't let them do that. And we should stop the people who are actively doing that right now, because (laughs) there is a very clear causal relationship between like where we started and how we got here and boy does uh oil corporations just like fill in that little box of like who did this who could have possibly who could have possibly done this um track really well (laughs) there's a really good quote that's like the earth isn't dying it's being murdered and the people who are like murdering and killing it have Names and faces and addresses and phone numbers. And they are trying to pay off politicians so that we don't do that. But we can also fight back in the many ways that we have. And like for a lot of people, that's not super actionable in like day to day because can't spend all day. At least I can't spend all day. So I know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Politicians, government. And I know that saying that is like that is the ultimate goal. And a lot of the time that's hard to do because on a day-to-day level, it's hard to like be like, my to-do list for today is to destroy the oil industry. Um, And sometimes that can be your to-do list if it's like an election day or something or somewhere where you had those moments where you have that input. Um, But maybe Jillian, you could share some day-to-day things or, you know, smaller timescale things that people can do to kind of start getting act into that space and like working up to uh, destroy the oil corporations? Yeah. One thing that I think is really important for the age of technology and those who have access to technology is using apps like iNaturalist to document what we are seeing And that does put evidence behind, you know, what Sebastian was talking about, creating scientific evidence for animals becoming threatened or extinct or vulnerable to extinction. And community science in particular, you know, working as a community, whether it be your local city, working with your state governments or just, you know, your neighborhood, 
you know, collecting that information together and working together as a unit to provide all of this data, this information, and to share that information with each other. And when you upload to an app like iNaturalist, which is available on all app stores and even on the web, so you don't even need a phone if you just have a computer. When you upload that data, it's accessible to every single person who has an iNaturalist account, and it's free. It's 100% free. And what's cool is that scientists are downloading that data from iNaturalist to provide that evidence to governments about what is happening to our planet. So that is one thing you can do right now is download iNaturalist and start documenting everything that you see. And it's not only good for conservation purposes, but it's also nice for scientists in general and um, community scientists to get to know what's around them. We get to learn more about our environment through day-to-day contributions of everyday people. It's easy to be a scientist. (laughs) Yeah. And it's sort of like the closest that you can get in a lot of ways day-to-day to like playing maybe not Pokemon the gym battler, but like Pokemon Snap. Like, you know, Pokemon in its very origins was a game around these sort of idea and culture in Japan of like collecting bugs and like battling them with each other, but also just being like, I got a really cool beetle. Let me see your really cool beetle. It was like a thing that kids would do in like the 80s and 90s. And there is nothing stopping you from going out and appreciating them in the same way. And like, there's a reason so many scientists trace their interest in wildlife to Pokemon. And like that carries over because the idea of I go out with my phone, uh, I find an animal I haven't seen before, I take a photo of it, and I'm learning. You know, I can look up, okay, what does it do? What's its life like? Where else is it found? You know, what does it turn into? Those concepts are there in real life, and you can, like, you could really appreciate and experience that for yourself just, like, any day, which is, again, the sort of idea of, like, you don't need to travel somewhere super far. You don't need to go through these extraordinary things to feel that sense of discovery. It's just sitting there kind of waiting for you to notice. My me- you may have noticed my meds I, are to go off of <laughs> To go off of what you've been saying, though, Sebastian, I mean, having appreciation and sharing appreciation for nature is a huge part of preventing more species from going extinct. And, you know sharing your knowledge with others so that they too feel compelled to act to protect and there these is species. one more step that i do want to encourage people to do if you have that ability which is there are one of the biggest things that is hurting particularly invertebrates but all types of animals is like losing habitat and lots of pesticide use and they're you know they're changing sort of the global or local Usage of that is one thing, but you can always fight back even just on your scale of creating little pockets of good habitat for these animals. You can plant native flowering plants. You can leave part of your yard with, you know, leaves over winter, maybe turn part of your lawn into a native plant lawn as opposed to a full grass lawn, which most animals can't use or live in. Um, and it doesn't need to be like, I have to change everything all at once. I can just make these little changes that will 
even on a small scale, you will see the contributions. You will see way more different species coming in. You'll see how that affects them year to year. Um, and it's also another way of like educating other people because you can be like, hey, I did this and this is what happened. Because for a lot of people, you know, they don't know about it or they might have a lot of concerns about, well, whoa, is it harder? Like if you have more bugs around, does it change this or that or whatever? Um, and people learn really well from personal stories. And so if you are doing that yourself, uh, sorry, I'm like, you could tell my brain's sort of like, Bleh. but people learn really well from personal stories. So having your own experiences to share when you're trying to convince others is um, always really effective. It's one of the reasons I've actually, I got really excited to move to the place that I'm in now, despite the var very echoey room, is that we have a balcony where I'm going to plant a bunch of native <laughs> plants this spring and actually get to enjoy this before where I didn't have like a space like that that I could use in our previous place. So that's something that will pay off really quickly, um, which I think is re really important to have in sort of the mix of like um, activist type things you do because some of the stuff is like really long-term and it's easy to get tired of like working and not seeing any results. But if you plant flowers and things, you will start getting these animals and you start seeing the, the effects of your, your, um, work wow adhd meds man adhd <laughs> meds okay. are, are there. important <laughs> folks this is unrelated but <laughs> if <laughs> last i just wanted to shout out some organizations that people can look into um first since we talked about blipbug dotler and or beetle there is an organization called the lost ladybug project because there are endangered ladybugs that's that is happening, the nine-spotted ladybug in particular. Um, so if you go to the lostladybug.org, it works similarly to iNaturalist, where people are attempting to catalog different ladybugs that they're seeing and tracking populations of ladybugs across time, which is super awesome that there's a site specifically dedicated to this type of invertebrate. And secondly, I wanted to shout out the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Um, Sebastian, do you mind talking a little bit about what the Xerxes Society is and what they do? Yeah, they are this great organization that, as the name says, is all about preserving all of the invertebrates in across the world. But their focus is, I think, largely in North America. They do a lot of both education and like real active conservation in habitat preservation and getting the data that you need to put species on the endangered species list and like tracking them and doing, um, figuring out what we can do to get some of those animals off the list, et cetera. They are, they, <clears throat> they also have a lot of resources for everyday people. So if you're interested in things like planting native plants or how to, you know, get more ladybugs or get more fireflies surviving in your yards so that you actually get to see them in the spring, um, they have all of kind of those. They have all of those resources available on their website for people to check out. And the last positive note I wanted to end on is, you know, one thing that keeps me motivated in terms of conservation, as specifically an arachnologist, is seeing how many spider species get described literally every day by the amazing work of our colleagues and what they're learning, literally minute by minute. 
We've recently hit 50,000 known and described species of spiders, and that number just keeps increasing. And so knowing that there are people out there doing this super important work and cataloging, cataloging these species, learning about what's out there so we know what we can do to protect and preserve them is part of what keeps me going and part of why I love arachnology and specifically lots of love to my taxonomy and systematics colleagues out there. In other words, what Julian's saying is if you want to be a Pokemon professor, if you want to be a Pokemon expert in real life, (laughs) that is a job that humans can have. We just call them bugs, but then everything else is basically the same. (laughs) um, And you get to spend your day just like, I'm going to go out and write the Pokedex entry for this thing. And you could go and you could do that and you submit it to Zoo Taxa and you get your paper and it's like, it's basically the Pokedex <laughs> entry for this animal. Zoo Taxa. Um, and that's like a thing that anyone listening right now, you can go started and like get on the career path to do that. Uh, so like, don't, you know, if that's your dream, if that even sounds like a little bit fun, start looking at some animals, start learning about these things and like follow that as far as it goes for you. And I'd like to offer that people can reach out to me. I don't know about you, Sebastian, but if people are curious about arachnology as a field and want to learn how to get more involved, you can definitely contact either of us. You can look at the, um, we specifically have ties to the American Arachnological Society, but there's arachnological societies across the globe. Um, To name a few, there's the Latin Arachnological Society. There's the British Arachnological Society. There's um, the there's just a, to name there's some Asian arachnological and there's an international one as well that yes. will have uh, one of the things they do is they list a lot of the kind of more regional societies. So if you're like looking for something closer to you, you can go to the international and kind of work your way down. And yeah, I'm happy to answer. I'm always yeah. happy to talk about bugs and spiders and all those cool animals. So uh, just, you know, hit me up on social media. I'm always happy to answer any questions about spiders or bugs or any of those other weird, cool animals. So please feel free to reach out and I will try my best to answer all your questions or at least point you in the direction of someone who might know a more, or at least point you in the direction of someone who will know a better answer than I do. Speaking of which, Sebastian, where can people find you and contact you? Uh, Please find me online and probably not in person. But if you'd like to learn about weird animals, if you didn't get enough weird animals today, that's my whole thing, please go to spiderdaynightlive.com. That's spiderdaynightlive.com, and that'll get you to, like, all my stuff. I'm on all the social medias um, if you want to actually, like, have a chance to, like, ask me questions and stuff. I don't check Twitter that often anymore, so Instagram or if you're on Blue Sky, hit me up there. I ha- What do I want to plug? Let's see. I'm going to I'm going to leave a pause cuz I need to check with my publisher if I can talk about this, but I actually have a field guide to spiders that's coming out uh in 2024, it should be rough sometime in the spring. And so if you're like, "Hey, I like bug type Pokémon. I wish they were real." Oh boy, do I have some very good news for you. If you just go outside, there's like literally millions of them. Uh, and they're everywhere. And then if you look at them, they do really, really cool things. And uh, this field guide is a nice little pocket-sized, small format. Um, but it's really aimed at people who are who are at that point in their life where they're very curious and they want to start. It's the sort of thing that I wish I had when I 
first got into arachnids and knew literally nothing about identification. And so that should be out. It's called Spiders of... Um, what, what is the title we went with? Spiders of the United States and Canada. So it's a Northern America field guide. And by, it'll be by Adventure Keen Publishing. And there will be more details of that in the future, but like keep an eye out for other fun stuff. Uh, you can check out the BBC Earth podcast uh, if you would like to hear me more go on weird tangents about weird animals because uh, that was a really fun show to do. And as always, listeners, you can join me and the Pika Science crew on Discord using the link below in the episode description. And last but not least, if you want to follow me, Jillian, on any of my socials, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bugs or Bust. That is B-U-G-S-O-R-B-U-S-T. Thank you all for tuning in and leveling up with EXP. Yeah.